and welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. For those of you who tune in regularly, you'll already know that we release three different types of podcasts. We have our seminar series where we provide opportunity to listen back to some of the most important presentations we've had at past events. We have our 10 minute lesson series where we aim to educate and inform listeners on particular areas of policy giving a brief overview somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 minutes and hitting on the key points that people really need to know. And then we have our interview series where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. In the final paragraph of his epic 745-page Capital in the 21st Century, Thomas Piketty writes, yet it seems to me that all social scientists, all journalists and commentators, all activists in the unions and in politics of whatever stripe, and especially all citizens should take a serious interest in money, its measurements, the facts surrounding it, and its history. So who am I to argue? This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Mary Meller, professor in the Department of Social Sciences in Northumbria University, to discuss what money is, where it comes from, and how it works. The title of her book, Money, Myths, Truths, and Alternatives Suggest, we have plenty to discuss and dismantle. We hope you enjoy it. I suppose I, I'm curious then, your, your journey towards the book. Now. Backgrounds in um, class politics and the third sector. Okay. I started off my main, I've always been interested in social justice and equality. So that's, that's a given right, right from the start. So I, I, I first of all started to uh, investigate the third sector, particularly the British cooperative movement, because it's one of the, it's, a, it's the original cooperative movement and it's co consumer cooperative movement got uh, big enough to really covering most working class communities. I mean, the co-op was everywhere. Mm. And uh, so I, I researched that for quite a few years. Um, but then I realized that even the big co-op like the British one couldn't stand up against the American supermarkets. So uh, I realized that uh, there was limits, although you know, it was excellent in its principles and like more third sector stuff is excellent in principles, but they're battling against the a mainstream market system. So, um, uh, so I, I then, then uh, I think the reason um, I got interested in feminism and well, I'd always, I'd always been a feminist mm -hmm. as personally, you know, I, you know, my own personal trajectory is the, that, uh, you know, I demanded to be, you know, to get where I wanted and do what I wanted, but that's class as well. Mm -hmm. uh, having the class background to be able to make that happen. I, I then sort of, uh, feminism really triggered mostly when it came together with the environmentalism, with the, um, the emergence of the green movement and the second wave feminism and also the eco-feminist movement. So I went straight in from third sector to eco-feminism, that particular, and then I, I explored the potentials for eco-feminism. And the, the background to all of it was an aim for socialism you know, that my, would, would the socialism be based on the third sector? Would it be based on gender and the, the green things? Which obviously, those are all still in debate. Um, I, I then pursued an, uh, the eco-feminists, uh, you know, until I thought I'd exhausted everything I wanted to say about it and ended up with materialist eco-feminism, which married uh, eco-feminism with, with a Marxist framework, basically. So as you can see, I've been everywhere. Um, and then I realized the limitations again was the market and the, the, the fact that the, the ability to have a public economy was stymied by the 
ideology of market domination. And of course, we hit then the period of, of uh, neoliberalism. So really, neoliberalism kicked off in the 19, uh, 1970s, really, and then built its way up. And that was the same time the eco-feminist movement was emerging and the third sector, third wave was emerging. So it, it was all happening. And in the end, I, I, I realized that money was the bridge to it all. So I, so I ended up uh, with money. Now, whether I'll go anywhere else after this, I don't know, but I think time is running out for me. I've been everywhere already. <laughs> it's a fascinating book. And one of the first things you ask the reader to do in the book is to imagine money. So I see cash, the notes, I would see money in my purse, but I would also see numbers on a screen or numbers in a passbook or numbers maybe on a bill or a credit card statement. And I thought I knew what money was until you asked that question. <laughs> so it, it, it's such a strange thing. Like you, you think it's like breathing. I just took it for granted until I had to stop and think about it. Yeah. So your book is myths, alternatives and truth. So, so you might even, I don't know whether you want to maybe explain what money is or what money isn't. Yeah, well, money isn't gold and silver. Money isn't precious. Money isn't uh, scarce. It's, uh, in fact, to think that money has its own integral value, that the money in itself is valuable, like a gold coin would be, or, or now, of course, a Bitcoin. Is we've come to this attempt to establish a, a valued currency. And what I've said is that, um, that money is not a, um, a, if you start thinking about money as having a price mm. or a value, I mean, uh, then effectively you're, you're calling it a commodity. And if money has a price, then you have to say, well, what's it worth? What's a pound worth? What's a dollar worth? And you'd have to say, well, a dollar was worth so many pounds. And then you say, well, what's a pound worth? Well, a pound is worth so many dollars. Mm. And you go backwards and forwards because in the end, each would be the money to the other. But in, in, in that way, neither would be money at the same time because you don't know what they're worth. Um, so to me, money is a, is a, a, a neutral yardstick of compa comparing value. So it allows you to say that is worth twice that. So to say something's worth five pounds or that's worth 10 pounds, it doesn't say anything that what a pound is, but all it says is that the ten pound is worth twice the two, the five pound, mm. and uh, and so it, it's purely numerical in that sense. But but the but it's not just that because we could measure in all sorts of things. You could use a a, a ruler and put to, you know this inch will be a pound and this inch will be ten pounds. Um, the point is, it's also a, a, a measurement of value that is transferable. That we, that we can pass on to somebody else or use in a different circumstance. Now, the, the, you can't use most things. You can't use a ruler. Well, I suppose you could if you designated it money. Yeah. But it would, um, so, so anything we understand as giving comparative value okay. and, is, and that comparative, comparative value, the representation of that comparative value, whether it's a, co a coin, a note, a gold coin, or a computer record, as long as that, um, that that's, uh, re representation of value is accepted and transferable between people. So they trust, they trust the represented value, not the actual value of the money. Is, is that, uh, that, that's quite complicated, isn't it? 
It is, it is. And I suppose ultimately it's money if we all agree it's money. Yes, that's right. Okay, so it's that sort of social... Well, I use the example of cigarettes in prison. Hmm. If you if you put a cigarette, if you have some cigarettes and you smoke them, then they're, then they're just cigarettes. But if you put it on the shelf and you intend to leave it there to trade with somebody else for, for something else, then it becomes money. And if that other person accepts it, as a, as as the transfer of value, then that person can smoke it, which means it ceases to be money, or it can leave that one on the, the shelf waiting to be passed on in another transaction. So the 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 value it it changes. It's like I say, not all paper is money, but money is paper. Not all base metal is is is, is money, but some base metal is money. Some computer blips are money, some computer blips aren't money. And what I thought was fascinating as well was, again, we would have all been brought up with that sort of myth of barter, that that's where money and market economy springs from. And that isn't the case, sure it's well, not. Yeah, well, that's, now that is where there is a truth, a real truth, yeah. that there was no, there were no communities based on barter. Not the most earliest communities, not the most, you know, um, non-state, non-market, and none of them. There is no evidence of human societies. Now, we regress to barter, like when the collapse of the Soviet Union, or I dare say they're bartering like mad in Afghanistan at the moment. Um, but that's because markets have ceased to exist, or, or structures of recipro reciprocity have ceased to exist. Um, but, uh, but the idea that you have a, a system where everybody barters with everybody else, just is, is not true and it was in, it was kind of invented by um really um menger was the one who really highlighted this and as i said in the book it, it's really done as a sort of um thought exercise it's not what came before money in markets it's what would happen if you didn't have money in markets now mm. and of course now yes you would start with barter because you've got commodities to barter but um, that's the, the, there was no, no bar. And of course, the other thing about money, the truth about money is that it was invented, even gold, even gold and silver coinage was invented 2000 years before the market. Okay. So it can't be anything to do with markets and trade and barter because it goes well back. So if it's not to do with trade and markets and barter, where did, where did money come from? Why were these coins minted? They, they were minted... Uh, basically by, uh, by states, by, by rulers. And uh, they were used, not for two or 300 years after they were invented. Um, coinage uh, was invented around about the 600 BCE. The most notable use of it was uh, Alexander the Great in, the, in 300 or so BCE. And it was used to pay um, mercenaries. So there was a kind of market in mercenaries because obviously mercenaries would go where they got they got uh, paid. But um, so control of the money supply and the and the money when it was based uh, precious metal was by through the rulers and uh, imperial rulers like Alexander the Great, in, and it has remained the belonging to the states ever since because if you think about all the gold in fort knox or the gold in the bank of england that's i mean the sum's still there you don't think of it as belonging to jeff bezos or somebody like that you think it belongs to the british state and it does so precious metal has always been 
a creature of governments and states and rulers and emperors, not is not anything to do with the market. Is that thing then that it's it's only a state that can create money, it's only a government that can create money, but the banks do it in a really weird way as well, don't they? Well, neoliberalism, you see, doesn't have any story of where money comes from because it says the state mustn't uh, mustn't create money, mustn't print money, and it says that the um, that the market creates creates wealth in the form of money, but it denies that it create it creates the money the money supply itself as opposed to the things that money moves around. So yes, this is, there's a two two you could call them two magic money trees. There's the the state, which as we've seen in the pandemic and the previous collapse of the financial sector in 2007-8, the state can create as much money as it wants. All it has to do is either, it print the old days, it would print notes, but it doesn't print notes anymore. It just credits uh, bank accounts of institutions and people, and, and um, it just allocates, allocates a budget, basically. And the budget is, is, is the creation of money. We've created uh, to, to um, to meet this crisis, I think, for in Britain, 490 billion pounds, I think. Um, now, it's always, that's always said as, oh, this is being borrowed. But, it, but the only person it's being borrowed from is the central bank, and the yeah. central bank's part of the state anyway. So the states, it's like, it's like saying, you know, you, you, you owe money to your, to your partner or something. You know, it's meaningless. Um, so we owe most of it that was carried by the central bank, and therefore we don't owe it at all. You know, we just we just if we wanted to clear the debt, we would borrow off the central bank to pay off the central bank, which is stupid. <laughs> but the banks in the market they create money every time they make loans, because the myth that comes when it's in the textbook still quite often the economics textbook that the banks act as intermediaries between savers and borrowers. Yeah. Well, investment banks, to a certain extent, do because they take in people's money for investment and they lend it out. So there is some truth in so there is a truth in that. But um, but the idea that the money supply and loans made by the whole banking system are generated by somehow gathering up the savings of, of a whole society and lending them out um, uh, is, is, is is just a nonsense. So. Nobody's bank is nobody's bank account is raided when somebody gets a mortgage off a bank. They don't go around to all the savers and say, you know, can we have a ten percent of your money or five percent, or can we take a thousand pounds off you for twenty-five years to give this person a mortgage? They don't. They just create. They can't, they can't print money. They're not allowed to print money, but they can set up the borrowing account as money, as 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 pounds or. They don't set them up as HSBC's personal money. It's uh, it's an account to borrow the British pound or the Irish euro or the, or the euro to, to draw on it, and nobody's robbed. So basically, the banks the banks create money when they make loans. The state creates money when it makes budgets. Now that money has to circulate. It goes round. The bank money eventually, if they're lucky, comes back with interest as people pay off. Uh, the state's money comes back as taxes, but it's it's uh, so it's a it's a whole money in a society is is a system of money creation and contraction, creation and contraction, creation and contraction, as money goes out and comes in, goes out and comes in, and it's uh, there's nothing magical about it, but it's mysterious, mm -hmm. 
that's for sure. I just want to go back to something that you had said that one of the myths was that money was scarce. And mm. what really connected with me in the book, because part of the work of Social Justice Ireland is analysing the Irish government's annual budget, is that every time somebody would sit down and say, I've come up with this amazing policy, this is going to change everything. And the first question that's asked is, well, who's going to pay for it? Money doesn't right. go on trees. <laughs> and that, that, that was, you know, straight away, I was like, oh, yes, th this is the book for me. And then as you said, to turn around and say, well, actually, it isn't a scarcity. Do you know what I mean? That's... Yeah, yeah. Well, and also money um, is uh, uh, en endemic to the, to, the, to the system. I mean, I see the economy as a sort of like a cobweb. And you can have very thin uh, cobwebs, which are long, um, shaky ones with, uh, or you can have dense interwoven, cob interwoven cob cobwebs. Mm. There'd be much more money pumped around in the dense one as it would be to a flimsy one. But, but the, the, the money isn't a, the, the money, it wasn't the scarcity of money that created mm. the density of the cobweb, it's the density of the cobweb that determined how much money there was. Okay. So if, if, if we all decided to up and down the street to bake each other breakfast and, and pay each other to have breakfast, you, you generate a lot of money. But in fact, you, you, you still have got all you've got your breakfasts. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It, it has, as we can choose to have densely mon monetary economy. And so money doesn't come, from, there's no money well. Yeah. There's no money pit. There's no money... It, it, there's no, nothing determining the size, it's the density of the relationships we want to recognise with money, whether we recognise that as a public sector, a social sector or a market. I thought it was Again, it's complicated. It, yeah, it is, it's very simple and it's very complicated. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing as well about handbag economics as well is, is what you call again our presumption that a government should manage its budgets the same way that I would manage my own household budget which is I live within my means if my means contract you know my that my incoming and my outgoings must match and you call that handbag economics mm. is that right have I got that right yes that's right that's right yeah. because um it ignores the fact that the the, the state is not a household it doesn't mm. rely on any external source of money uh, it doesn't even rely, it has no need to rely on taxes, like with the uh, 490 billion for the pandemic. Um, the, the, the state, it's not the money that determines the size of, the, like I said before, the size of the economy or the public sector or the private sector or the third sector. It's the, the size of those sectors that, that generates the money. And therefore, there's, as much, there's always as much money as you have willingness to pass it around. Now, you do have things like inflation, there's no doubt about that, but that's because you, um, you haven't, uh, you've, you've overloaded certain sectors. I mean, there is un massive, massive inflation in the financial sector. All this quantitative easing has gone to, the, basically gone to sponsor a speculative boom, massive one that carried on right through the pandemic when the government was spending all this money saving everybody's jobs. The, the, the rich and the speculative rich just got richer and richer and richer. Because if you don't, if you, it, it's not controlling the flow of money that's important, it's controlling the flow of the, of the movement of, of the, the money supply between the sectors. So if you, if you put all the money in, in, into the, to the banking sector, 
and you don't put some penalties on it, like taxes or something like that, or limits, or uh, then it will just inflate and inflate and inflate and inflate. If you have a vibrant public sector and your market is marketing commodities is, is floundering, you the money spent out of the public sector into the market sector will cause inflation. So that's why it's very important to regulate the flow of money and where it's going and what it's doing. So you can have too much or too little money, but it's not the money supply from somewhere else doesn't determine it. Politics of money within the system determines it. There was a headline in one of the weekend's papers, the end of super cheap money question mark. That again, that really caught my eye because how can, you know, super cheap money, cheap money and money, as you said, if it doesn't have a value, like that, the headline just made no sense, but it was, it was about inflation. It was about cheap borrowing. So it, it's the politics, I suppose, that plays out in where money comes from and how it's spread around. And, and, and one of the things in your book, I suppose, is to democratise money. Absolutely. Well, what, what I've tried to say is money isn't a natural thing. It's not a, te- it's not a technical thing. It's not a, a natural thing that comes out of these holes in the ground or whatever it might be. So it's, uh, it's not created by the market. It is a, a representation of the relationships between people on different, in different models of, 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 of circulation, public sector circulation, third sector circulation, market circulation. Um, with, with the financial sector as part of that. If you say that you, it, it, if you treat it like a natural thing, then whoever is most dominant in the community will dominate the money system, which at the moment is the market. It's the, it's the free trade, um, it's the neoliberal ideology that is dominant at the moment. And, it, and it's po- the politics of neoliberalism, like the central bank should be independent of the state, et cetera, which is pure uh, ideological political position. Um, uh, they're, they're ruling the roost at the moment because they're treated, they've got us all to treat money as natural, something we think we understand, but we don't understand. So I'm fighting to say, well, let's try and understand what money is and what money isn't. And that's by no means easy, as you can see in this interview. So it's, it, I mean, I've, this is my, the fourth book I've written on money, the third one I've written by myself, trying to work it out <laughs> and trying to make it as simple. And I think the last book, by, by treating it as the magic of money, I'm, you know, I'm beginning to break through. I think that, uh, that you, you can, you can understand it. So, if if we don't treat money as a public resource, and the reasons of public resource, as I say in the book, is that no matter where money comes from, whether it comes out of bank lending or out of state spending, wherever it comes, it's it's a liability on us all. It's a liability on what we can and can't have in society, as the as the institutions we build or not build. Therefore, if we have to politicize money and say, look, there's nothing natural about it at all. It's a, it is, the, it is the, the most social construct you could ever have because it has no tangibility whatsoever. It's not a thing. Sometimes it's designated as things, but that doesn't make it money. The thingness doesn't make it money. The moneyness makes it money. And the moneyness is a social construct, a decision in society to treat these particular means of transfer and means of measurement, whatever they are, as uh, something which we agree to honour and, and, and we need it. Mm. We need it because uh, how do you run a complex society without being able to make value judgments? You, you do need to be, compare one thing with another. 
you know, how much, uh, how much care does somebody need as opposed to how much care somebody else needs. I mean, you could do it in terms of three days, four minutes, 30 seconds, or you could say, uh, you know, a care worker uh, for, you know, so many hours, and then the, this will be the price of the, of the care worker. You know, so you, you do need, if you try to do, do it all individually, you tie yourself up in knots very quickly. As our societies have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, we need, as you said, some way of pairing things um, and exchanging things. If we live in a small family unit and we, everything we do is geared towards our family unit, that's fine. But I think once you start interacting outside of that, you need to have some form of... That's right. Well, the interesting thing is the origin. People, uh, I think, quite um, uh, like David Graver and other people mm. who've, um, who've pointed out, uh, and lots of people have said this, that the most original use of a money thing wasn't the market at all. It was this business of blood money. Mm. Yeah. And if you have a society which can be very small, you can have a virtually family community, but you get conflict, then you can, you can fight it out, you can slug it out, you probably don't have a mediator, you don't have a ruler, you don't have a wise person necessarily who can uh, give you a punishment. But what you can do is, is give people a value of what they've done wrong. So money, the original money, people think, was um, if you've got conflict or if you've got people who've quarreled or somebody's stolen somebody else's wife or, you know, something, or then they're, they're, they're fined by the money, whatever, and all human societies have some, have some notional thing, which they measure by this, this by so many, so much corn, so many shark's teeth, you know, so many um, bits of stick, so many shells. Uh, it's not, and it's not the shells that's important. It's, uh, it's the fact that this, your, the damage you did there was three shells and the damage you did over there was 300 shells. You know, therefore, you know, you owe somebody a lot more, rep re you know, reparations if you if you owe them three hundred shells and if you owe them three shells. It's there's not the it's, it's, it's so it's, it's you don't even have to transfer the shells because uh, it's just measured in terms of shells. But it's that it's that neutral thing of measurement that human beings seem to need. Like you say, once you get past the immediate family unit funny you mention that because when you're talking I'm thinking all the Icelandic sagas that's a big part of them I've just finished reading Beowulf mm. but that's again that talk of pose of tribute and of yeah so you know if you take a life and I know you even mentioned it in, in, in one of the interviews I was listening to that our language like you know that you would pay a king's ransom so that mm. there's um there's a value put on certain lives and and value put on limbs and a value put on relationships mm. and that's that's almost probably where where money has started from not necessarily yeah. the butcher looking for boots and the bootmaker looking to get his roof fixed like that it, it hasn't yeah. come from barter it's come from violence well yes it's come from the need to and but also celebration Okay. You, have, you, you, you have the same thing where you you give people gifts. Like I think one of the things I talk about is somebody on the birth, the husband's supposed to give his wife 20 cloths or something, you know, as acknowledgement. So it's a sort of, uh, it's a symbol of solidarity as well. So it's tribute, it's um, celebration. I, I had the fee fi fo fun. Yeah, uh, festivals, um, force, fidelity. You know, I, I managed to, 
get several things beginning with F to say what money did. Fines. Yes. Fines, yes, fines. Because it just keeps going back to that thing of, I thought I knew what it was, I thought it was simple, and it really, really, really isn't. But for us to democratise it, I know you touch on things like participatory budgeting quite briefly in, in the book. I mean, do you think there's a do you think there's a future for things like that? There's two ways we need to think about democratising money. Uh, well, several ways. Firstly, you have said already, we're responsible for the integrity of our public currency, whatever it is. And it, if, if people misuse and abuse it, it impinges on all of us. So it is a political question. Well, let's establish it's a political question. The next political question is if, if most of your new money comes out through, through bank loans, which we, we do at the moment, a lot comes out through bank loans, then they're, they're, they're very unjust and they're very problematic because I set that the several reasons are problematic. The main one is that you don't get a loan unless you're credit worthy. So, it's, so in terms of social justice, it's a free market system in the sense that anybody can go and ask for a loan, but not anybody can get one. And uh, therefore, you, the, the, and the people who can get the, the loans most easily these days are speculators in the financial markets. They can tap into a bank, uh, bank loans and, and just do very brief overnight loans, which they pay a, a fee for. Uh, because they do, uh, or even a minute's loans, they want to make a £10 billion bid on something, on, on buying a share or buying a currency, and they'll borrow the £10 billion for five minutes and pay so many, such a fee, you know, to the bank for this notional, this totally notional, you know, minute or two that they have it. And of course, if they lose it all, then it, the bank's in debt, uh, trouble. So, so, so there's a question of the social justice of letting the banks create money through loans because it's, it's, it's ecologically unsound, it's even economically unsound because you end up in the end in Ponzi schemes like the Bitcoin business. But it's mainly the injustice of the fact that you can't get the money unless you already are wealthy. Then it comes to, then the, the, the question becomes, uh, so, so making bank loans is not an innocent thing and needs to be publicly monitored and publicly addressed then we need to reclaim the, the principle that the states do create money. Every time they make a budget, they're creating new money, which is, which in the circle of things is, is con continually replaced by taxation, but not created by taxation, replaced by, by retrieving the money. Uh, so the state is continually creating money, most of which, um, most of which, uh, a good deal of which end up in the private sector as the public sector spends its money. And how big or how small that is, is, is not determined at all by the size of the market. It's determined by how big a public economy people want. So it's not that you pay more taxes to create a bigger state. If you create a bigger state, you circulate more money, therefore you can afford to pay more taxes. But you need to pay more taxes to avoid inflation. Because as you see, I've, I've just identified recently this catch-22. The market says, well, we fund all the public sector. So therefore, you know, you mustn't tax the market because the market needs, you know, needs to have all that money to create this wealth, which you can then tax. But you can't tax the market. So it promises if you stop, if you don't tax it, it will make lots of money. But if you try to tax it, it immediately says, well, now we won't make any money. So there is no way the private, the public sector can actually get money out of the market sector, that it doesn't put in itself. Um, to me, that, 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 that's crazy. 
the state, if the state is relying on the market, then it can never be funded. They can never be funded, which is quite crazy. And in fact, of course, it is the, I, I don't think it is the, the market that funds the state. I, I think it's the state that funds the market. And that's where the participatory budgeting comes in, because if, 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 there's, no, if there's no automatic limit on the state from the market, then how big or how little the state is and what you spend your money on becomes a political question. And if it's a political question, it should be democratically addressed. And it shouldn't be addressed by just centralised politicians in parliament. It should be devolved down to the lowest possible level where people use those facilities, the local school, local infrastructure, uh, local environment. Uh, it, it should be devolved. There was a line that I, I, I'd taken out of a book that I'd read only recently that kind of sort of maybe sums that up is that suppose as the public you know that we would view these things as being you know maybe best left to the experts and we have this probably incorrect notion that economics is is a positive science that examines choices in a world of constrained resource and that one only has so much time or money or capital and really what you're saying is well actually no like economics isn't a science it isn't constrained resource. These are political decisions that are being yeah. made. It is the it's the most important political decision because if yeah. you think about it, if you think of, of states that haven't evolved lots of markets and banking systems, so they're largely state dominated. So they are they are state economies, uh, like most of the developing countries are state economies. The money is controlled by the ruler quite, mm -hmm. and uh, and you can get great corruption like you can get in any society. Um, the conflict from from if you don't from the politics of money if you've got distinct the distinct political groupings the 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 followers of particular leaders they need to make sure their guy or woman gets in power because they they then get the money so so it's a battle for politics is about getting the money and then it's clientelism isn't it it's um it's looking after your own people and the, the, therefore the politics becomes vicious because mm -hmm. if your person doesn't stay in power, no matter how corrupt they are, no matter how useless they are, but as long as they stay in power, the money will come your way. And, uh, and, but if you had a, 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 a democratic democratization of the money supply, then it the, the ruler wouldn't be able to say, well, I'm gonna feed it all to my, to my people. They would have to say, you have to, allocate resources to to all the people and it, and you know an, an economics of money would would take the the bitterness a lot of the bitterness out of we must get our person into power because otherwise we i mean in a way boris johnson is trying to do that by stealing the labor supporters by saying we're going to give you money we're going to allocate resources to you now whether he ever does yeah is another matter but he's promising and and that switched people's votes yeah. or, or, or taking the money would take all the money from the EU that we were giving to the EU, this massive sum they kept mm. talking about, and we'll give it to, to us, to our people. It's a politics of money, isn't it? Maybe one final thing before I let you go. You just said you're kind of ha having all this money and giving it to the people. Can you see a time where we have a universal basic income in any, anywhere? Properly, like we've had pilots everywhere. It's been well researched with lots of papers. But can you actually see universal basic income working? And if so, how would it work? Well, I'm not 
very um, pro-universal, basically, kind okay. of within the current system, because it, um, if people don't have an open-ended view of money, then you have to roll up other benefits to, to go into the income, which is it's, it's a flat it's a flat rate, and I'm and I'm not keen on flat rates in unequal systems. If we had an equal system, the flat rate would be okay. But also, um, it, it, putting money in people's pockets is one is a good thing if they don't have any money. But uh, I, I would I prefer the principle of universal basic services. That is, you make sure everybody's got a home, make sure everybody's got food, make sure everybody's got health, um, the, the, make sure people can travel from one place to another. So have, have a have a functioning and and comprehensive and universalistic basic service delivery, which could be done by the market if the market is willing to put people before profits, you know, if it's willing to, to or it can be done by the third sector. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. Um, so now I think there should be a minimum income so that nobody drops below a minimum income. So that if, if anybody's got disabilities or, or doesn't feel able for various reasons, then nobody should drop below a certain level. But I think, um, I think there's universal basic services with a minimum income guarantee for, for people then that would be, you could, I mean, you could do it as a, as a basic income and, and claw it straight back by tax for, for convenience. So the better off don't get the benefit of it. So as a, a, administratively, it's probably simpler to do a universal basic income and claw back through the, through the tax system. But it, but it means that the, the money's going to the people who need it. Especially to, to overlay that on the current system, you would need to change the system for that to work, really, wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Otherwise, the money becomes um, dissipated, the use of the money. I mean, uh, the rich won't need it and the poor won't get enough of it, I think. I think that whole thing about money is always about the economy. It's never about the environment. So it's about hopefully that you would have social justice would get a nod in, in decisions that are being made about money. Well, I've, to, I've talked about the concept we haven't discussed, but we could do sufficiency provisioning. Okay. Uh, sufficiency provisioning is enough for all mm. but not too many uh, not, uh, it's difficult to you've, you've had things like basic needs and those mm. kind of things people try to think about that and I think it's quite hard a bit like identifying the value of money it, basic needs are, are a movable feast to, to, to not put a very apt um, <laughs> a metaphor there but you know when people have too much mm. and you know when people have too little so if you legislate so the people who have got too little have enough and people have got too much give up some of what they've got, then you're probably getting to sufficiency provisioning, which is provisioning because that covers paid and unpaid labor and different uh, aspects of human society, conviviality and all the rest of it. S sufficiency because it's got to be enough, but it's got to be ecologically sustainable. You can't pitch everybody at a, you know, the Jeff Bozos level. Uh, so it, it seems to me that uh, if you go for a political principle of sufficiency provisioning, Everybody gets what they need, but not more than they need. And you live within ecologically sustainable framework. That's what we should be aiming for. Mary, that is a beautiful last sentence. I think, I think we, may, we may have peaked there. I think that's a beautiful way to end it, because that's very hopeful and very joyous. Thank you so much. Thank you and all your organisation for your interest in my work. Thank you for listening. I hope you found it useful. 
If you have any ideas for future podcasts, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions.